Well, in reflecting upon the basic contents uh, of First Timothy chapter 3 that we've examined so far, it seems to me that there are two things that, that hold together and that we can't miss in this great chapter about offices and officers. And that's, uh, the first thing is that Christ would have His church served. And second, Christ would have His church served well. There are two things that are inseparable here. Service in Christ's church and excellent service in Christ's church. We know Christ would have His church served. Uh, That's stamped across the whole of the New Testament as we receive abundant testimony of the fact that Jesus Christ has showered His church with gifts and graces and that each and every individual that has been implanted and united to Jesus Christ is a possessor of their own unique spiritual gifts. And those gifts are to be used for the advantage and the welfare of the body of Christ as a whole. But it doesn't just stop there because in chapters such as this we have ample evidence of the fact that Christ has instituted within His church servant offices. And so we've been thinking about those. The office of the service of the Word and the service of shepherding and the service of the diaconate. And of course, all that being anchored in, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, when Paul himself calls all of this gifts of Christ. And he lists off a series of officers and he calls them gifts and he makes the case that the point of those gifts is for the purpose of ministry. So we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ has instituted service in His church and service specifically through officers. And that's what Paul accents here as he expounds the two ordinary and continuing offices in the church, that of the office of elder and that of the office of deacon. So we have clear indication that Christ would have His church served, but the thing that I think is accented as we step back and look at the qualifications and in the general frame of the argument, as we're going to see it in our text here, Christ would have His church served well. You see, we take that from the qualifications. As you look over the qualifications for both the office of elder and the office of deacon, these are qualifications of maximum spirituality and evidence of grace. That those who would fill these office, offices are, are to be those whom Christ is working in uh, in an extraordinary way, building them up in doctrine and morals and practice because Christ would have them serve His church in an excellent way. And as He rounds out the discussion of office uh, here in our text, as we come to verse 13, for example, we notice that the very way in which Paul concludes his exposition of church service is that he lays out motives for officers to serve well. And the thing that we're to take away from that set of motives is not that he places them in there so that those who would serve would be motivated by benefits. That's true. But the reason for placing him in there is that they would be motivated by benefits to excellence in the service of Christ and His church. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning, is excellent service. And so we're going to break that into two parts, quality servants and excellence promoted. So we think of quality servants, and the first thing we think of is specific qualifications. And you can see those in verse 12. Now we have specific qualifications for males who are deacons. It says here, they must be the husband of only 
one wife. And as we saw this particular qualification back under the uh, exposition of the qualifications for elders back in verse 2, we noticed that there are all kinds of interpretations of this. We read about the husband must be the, the husband of one wife. Uh, we said that there was uh, uh, the interpretation that said this is a prohibition against polygamy, that is having multiple wives at once. Uh, others have said, well, it means that uh, a person is to have only one wife at a time throughout his life. And others have said that this is an evidence of, of a requirement for um, marriage to be a servant in the church. That if you're not married, well, you may be a very gifted person, a useful person, but you're just not cut out for service in the church because that's only for men who are married. And then we said there is finally the interpretation of fidelity. Of fidelity. And we settled on that before, and I settle on it here again. And one of the reasons is grammar. We, we pointed to 1 Timothy 1.9, where the almost identical grammatical construction occurs there in Paul's discussion of widows. And at the very end of the qualifications given for the kind of widows who could be taken onto the role of the church to be uh, provided for financially, is that they had to be a one-man woman. Now that's exactly the qualification here for grammatically for for the deacon and for the elder. They had to be a one-woman man. And, And the point of it is to say it points to fidelity, faithfulness in marriage, to sexual purity and control. And of course in the ancient world, I don't need to Uh, tell you this, it was a world that ran amok with sexual sin. It was overflowing, especially on the male side, with sexual promiscuity. The idea that a man would be sexually faithful to his wife was unthinkable. Totally unthinkable. And so right here, as the apostle lays down the qualifications only for the eldership, for the diaconate, but for people who would serve in the church, he draws a bright red line in the sand and he says, the kind of people who have manifested the moral and spiritual excellence to serve in the church of Christ must be those who are marked out by sexual purity and fidelity and faithfulness in marriage. In other words, the requirement to be a one-woman man, was a test of character. You realize this is about trust. This is about trust. The person who is faithful in marriage is the person, the kind of man, who can have the full trust of his wife. And if a man doesn't have the full trust of his wife, he surely shouldn't have the full trust of the church. It's about trust. It's about restraint. The man who can't restrain his appetites is a man who cannot be counted on to restrain his appetites in a whole range of areas, and therefore he's entirely unfit for service in the church. The husband of one wife is a man who keeps his word. When he makes a commitment, when he takes his vows to be the husband of one wife, he's not to break that. A one-woman man is the kind of man who says, I do, and he means it for the rest of his life. And so as you look at this qualification, you begin to realize that uh, um, 
involved within is a whole set of moral and spiritual qualifications. And you look at just this one, you begin to realize the qualification of, of moral excellence. He upholds his words, he maintains his commitments, and he restrains his appetite. So that's the first specific quality that is excellent. I'll notice another one here in the rest of verse 12. It says they're to be good managers of their children and of their household. We've seen this word before. Manager, it means to, to lead or guide or, or to direct. But the thing that receives spotlight here is not the managing, but the adverb. Well. Well. It, it, it is the quality of nobility and honor. It's fine. It's excellent. And so the, the accent of our text is to, to characterize the very quality of the management. That it's not just management, but it's excellent management. It's noble. It's honorable. It's of the finest quality and of character. And so the rule that is fitting for a person who would serve in the diaconate is a person who's not just managing, but he's managing his home with excellence. And then we see the spheres of that management. Children. This is obviously a reference to the children who are under his roof. The children who are under his authority. These are children who are not yet of the adult age. They're probably teenagers and younger. And the thing that uh, the apostle requires of this is that he must manage his children well. The thing that we think of when we think of whether a father is managing his children well is whether his children show him any respect. You see, if a child doesn't show his father any respect, we can be pretty sure that that father is not managing his home, let alone managing it well. Because a child that has been, draw, uh, been brought up to fear God will fear his father. Because his father will make sure that if he's not fearful, that it will be reinforced with discipline. And it won't just be a fear of quaking and trembling, but it'll be a fear born of love. So this speaks of the kind of management of the home where the father not only leads and disciplines, but he reinforces it and he reaffirms it through love towards his children. And so the children being managed well is a call to the father to take the office and calling of fatherhood seriously. You see, if he's not serving and managing his household well with children, he probably won't manage other things well either. But as I got to thinking about this, I realized that this is the charge for every father. This is the charge for every father, whether a man ever darkens the door of church office as an elder or a deacon, this is still the call of every single father to manage their children well. And this is such an important calling, qualification today. We need in this world and in this church, godly fathers. One of the great reasons why our culture is as morally and spiritually rotten and bankrupt and depraved as it is, is because it started in the home. We can make a case it's also due to the negligence of the church, but it's also due to the home. Fathers abdicating their responsibility and duty and giving it to somebody else. Usually at the public school system where the child is dropped off at school from 7 o'clock in the morning, eats their breakfast, lunch, and almost dinner there and isn't brought home until daycare ends at 6 p.m. at night. 
And this goes on and on, day after day after day, year after year after year, where the father is an absentee father and he's not involved in the life of his child. The result is, you have children that don't know anything about respect for fathers. And what we need is for fathers to take their calling to fatherhood seriously. And so fathers, I speak to you this morning. The greatest honor, well not the greatest, but one of the greatest honors of your life is to be a father. One of the greatest honors of your life. I've exalted uh, mothers uh, as, as, as we've preached these sermons, and I, I've reinforced time and again, that, that one of the most important influences on the, wife, on the life of a child is its mother. But I say the same thing now for the fathers. One of the most excellent things that you are called to in this life is to be a father. And here's the thing, you only get one shot at it. That's the scary thing about it. You only get one opportunity to be a father. And what a great calling it is. It's that calling, as we thought about from Psalm 127, which is to fashion and shape your children into arrows that, as the godly archer does, draws the bow and fires them straight into the concourse of life. They expand his godly influence there. So it's a call to cultivating the office. It's a call to self-discipline. It's a call to prayer. It's a call to, to sharpen oneself to the best of one's abilities. It's to, to make every preparation possible before becoming a father, but it's also to continue to sharpen and cultivate that calling while you're a father. And so one of the things that every father needs to do is take inventory regularly and say, am I, am I before God fulfilling this calling as I, as I should? Am I cultivating the wisdom? Am I baptizing it in prayer? Am I conforming to the word? Am I showing my children love? Am I disciplining them in the Lord? Am I involved in their life? One of the saddest things to see in the church is to watch children who grew up within the church walk away from the church. Because their heritage was rich. The children of unbelievers don't have that heritage. It's sad to see them walking in darkness, but it's not the same sadness that you feel when you see children who were born and baptized and raised in the church walk away. Why do they do that very often? They do it very often because they were neglected. They weren't trained in the faith. They weren't loved by their father. They were not disciplined. And one of the hardest things to do is win them back. One of the hardest things to do is to win back a child who's been brought up in the faith and was neglected while being brought up in the faith. Fathers, you have a great calling here this morning. And again, as I say, whether you ever serve as a deacon or not, this is one of your greatest challenges and one of your greatest opportunities in all of life. And so when we hear qualifications for the diaconate set forth in the eldership, and it includes home management and management of our children, it's a call to all of us to cultivate this office and to motivate ourselves to excellence in training up our children. We'll never regret it by spending all of our strength and energy at it. Never. And by the way, you'll never stop being a father either. Just to, just to put that out there. You will never stop being a father until you die. And so it's a great calling that requires the greatest earnestness. 
So one of the specific qualifications here is training up children well. The other is management of the household. And the household here is as broad as we can think of. And it begins, first of all, with that man himself. Because it says his own house. And that means the, uh, the father is the head of the house. By divine appointment, the father is the head of the home. And so his household includes him. And so the, the beginning of household management is the beginning of self-management and self-control. You see, the father sets the tone for the house. And so it's his calling to be the godly servant the, and the leader and the one who's leading in Christ. The home also involves the children and, and the wife and, and everybody else who's there. And then finally it would involve the property and the finances and the stewardship and, and all of it. So the home is a, it's an enormous concept, but the thing here the Apostle Paul stresses is the management of it will be done well. And there's a peculiar um, uh, shift in our text away from what we saw in verses 4 and 5 when we uh, saw something similar with respect to the elders. You'll notice there that the Apostle, when he's speaking of the elders, speaks of the managing well and keeping his children under control of dignity. But then verse 5 says, if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? In other words, an analogy is being set up here in the text when it comes to the eldership saying, it is a litmus test of rule. How he rules in his home is a litmus test and and an indicator and a forecaster of how he will rule in the church. But you see, since the diaconal office is not a ruling office, the apostle does not complete his thought in the same way. He simply leaves it at management, an excellent management. And the point of it is to say, the qualification for the deacon that's set forth here is how is he administering management in his home? Is it orderly? Is it under Christ? Is it wise? Is it faithful? Is it prudent? And so the person that has a proven track record at administrative excellence in in their home, well, well, they'll be prepared for that administrative excellence in the church. So we have excellent qualifications. And then the other component here to the qualities of excellence that we want to think about is testing. Uh, This is unique uh, to the diaconate and the setting forth of the qualifications. So I would say there are a fair number of of commentators who will look at verse 10 and say that, uh, the apostle is is really just drawing a comparison to what precedes. But he doesn't make it explicit there in elders, but he certainly does here with deacons. As you can see from verse 10, he says, these must first be tested. And it's a command. The apostle is setting forth a command that whoever would serve in the diaconate must be somebody who is tested. And the verb is passive. And so the indication of the passive form of the verb is to say that the deacon is, uh, or the person who would be deacon opens themselves up willingly to be analyzed. To make their life, as it were, a sort of open book and subject to scrutiny. And it's a present tense verb, so it indicates that it didn't just happen once, but it's a process and an observation of what's going on over time. And so they must be tested. It's careful and it's deliberative. And, and no doubt it's, it's something the congregation as a whole is doing. After all, the entire congregation is being addressed here when the apostle expounds the qualifications for office. So that means the entire, qualifi- the entire congregation is aware of the qualifications. 
And in the Reformed Presbyterian Church order, any single adult communicant member of the congregation has the right and the authority to nominate somebody for office in the church. They have the right to do that. It doesn't mean that person is going to get voted in, but they have the right to nominate. And so the, um, the responsibility is on the membership of the church to engage in this analysis and this testing, this examination. And beyond that, I would say, obviously, it's a job of the elders. The elders would be involved in vetting and analyzing and testing those nominations and those who would serve in the church. But I want you to notice the result of this testing, and it's located at the end of the verse. The testing is to discern this, so that beyond reproach. This is one of the scariest words in in all of this, isn't it? I want somebody to raise their hand right now to say, I'm beyond reproach. Well, it's, it's one of those words that makes you stop and think. It's a sobering qualification. And uh, John uh, Calvin would, would draw us back from the abyss of despair by saying, it means to be free from any notorious fault. Because otherwise there would be no one serving in the church if it really meant to be utterly beyond any kind of reproach at all. There will be sin in the life of anyone who is called to any service in the church because every person who is a member of the church is a sinner. It's the idea of a, of a basic conformity, a model, a, a, a character that manifests itself to be a character of integrity, of consistency, and a pattern of behavior, a, a record of conduct over time. That's what the apostle is talking about here. There's consistency to the person's walk. And if they have all that, he says, let them serve. Yeah, the verb here is... Um, Deaconing. Let them deacon, it says. And virtually everyone agrees that that means let them serve in the office of deacons. That's why the the New American Standard says let them serve as deacons. But literally, it just says let them deacon. But the idea is clear enough from the text that it's a technical form. The apostle is saying if a person meets these qualifications and they have been tested and they have been shown to be without accusation of notorious fault or crime or sin, that they've been repentant and they've exercised faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, well, they're called, they can be called to serve in this office. And so as I step back from the qualification of servants, one of the things that strikes me about our text here is that Christ would have his church served by people with excellent qualities. Calvin puts it like this. When deacons are to be ordained, the choice must not fall at random on any that come to hand. In other words, what, the, what, what Calvin is saying, he's saying not just any person will do. You, you, you can't just sort of put a list of, of a volunteer sign-up sheet in the back of the church and say, well, whoever signs up, it's not at random. It's not anyone at hand. Calvin is stressing the point that the Apostle Paul is making here, that when we seek to ordain and set apart people for the office of diaconate, only those who are known for integrity are to serve. And so, the point is made that it's not just desire. Remember in verse 1, we accented the point that Paul says, every man aspires to the office of overseer. He desires a good work. And one of the things there that the apostle did, and we noted it before, was that the apostle is, is, 
is seeking to move qualified servants by, by setting forth the nature of the offices as excellent. And so he says, if, some, if, if anyone desires those, if they aspire after those uh, excellent offices, they seek that which is good. But desire isn't enough. Desire is required. After all, we don't want somebody to serve in, in any office in the church that's doing it begrudgingly or because they have to. That will never lead to excellent service. But more than desire is required. Excellence and the pursuing of excellence is what's required. We see that in these qualifications here that Paul sets forth. He would stir the people of God to pursue excellent qualifications so they can serve in excellent offices, so they can administer excellent service to Christ and His church. So we begin there with just thinking about the qualifications. And then we see that excellence is promoted. That's the last thing I see here in our text in verse 13. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Jesus Christ. I want us to, to put our finger in verse 13 on well. He says, for those who have served well. That means in the right way. People who have served in a way that is with distinction, that honors Christ, that is according to the word of God. Paul is, is spotlighting something here. Not just service. He's spotlighting excellent service. And I want you to notice what he adds to that. Those who have served well obtain for themselves. They obtain for themselves. And the word means to acquire by exchange. It means to acquire or to purchase something by exchange. And so basically the apostle commercial language here. He's talking about currency being traded for some object that's worthy of desire. And in this context, it's very clear that what is being exchanged is that person's effort and labor and conscientiousness and their determination to serve with excellence. That's the currency of exchange. And the thing that is secured, well... It's the two things that are spotlighted here in our text. A high standing and great confidence in the faith. And so what we want to see here is that excellence is promoted. Excellence is promoted. The apostle is seeking to motivate those who are now in office to seek to do it well. And there's two things that he sets forth to motivate that excellent service and the first I'm going to argue is brotherly commendation. Brotherly commendation. Verse 13, For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing. Now, the word for standing there basically means rank, metaphorically. Literally, it means steps. But most know that's not what's in view here. It, it speaks of an ascending or something of that nature. Rank or, or status. And there, there are those who would go to this text to justify the idea that the diaconate is really the junior leagues of church ministry. And the idea here is that if somebody does well as a deacon, well, it's time for the promotion upward to eldership. 
And I've warned us about that idea before, and I've seen it often in the Reformed tradition, that people seem to have the mentality that if we want to get somebody on the track to eldership, let's start them out in the diaconate and see how they do when they get their feet wet. And I said, that's ridiculous, because they're two entirely different sets of qualifications, and they're two entirely different sets of offices with entirely different natures and aims and purposes. And some people just don't have the gifting to be an elder that are excellent deacons. And there's some people who are good elders that would be horrible deacons. Don't get me started on pastors. So what we don't want is a mix and mashing. What we want is for people to understand under Christ what is their God-given interest and ability and gifting. And so it would be wrong to look at this and to see the high standing is promotion up to the office of eldership. There's lots of people who take it that way, but John Calvin is stubbornly opposed to it, correctly so. He rejects it. And it says, the high standing cannot be understood as a reference to how the diaconal servant is, is led into higher orders of service. No, he says what the Apostle Paul is doing here is encouraging service. He's encouraging service by referring to to the estimate of the people of God about the deacon. See, the high standard is the subjective understanding, awareness, and appreciation of the congregation for the service of the deacon. That's the thing that's in view here. What the Apostle Paul is saying here is that when somebody serves well in Christ's church as a deacon, the people of God will notice it. And it's not just that they will notice it and take note and think to themselves, I appreciate that person's service. No, the encouragement is that they share that information with the servant. Otherwise, there would be no motivation being given here. Remember, Paul is motivating service because he is saying they obtain for themselves what? A good standing. Well, how could a deacon ever know whether people were appreciating them if people didn't tell them that? There's no way to know. I can't, no one can read minds. So the point here is that the excellent service by the deacon secures for them the approbation and approval and thankfulness of the people of God whom they serve. And they obtain high regard from others. They receive honor. Paul talks about this with the eldership too. He speaks about the double honor. Remember, there's elders who serve and they're worthy of honor. And then there's the one who teaches and rules and he's worthy of double honor. And the sense is the honor in the one regard is the person who's serving as an elder who's not a teaching elder is receiving the honor and the praise and the regard and the admiration and the thankfulness of the people of God. And the person who gets the double honor is the person who gets all of that and they're compensated for their hard work in the word. Well, the same thing is at play here when the Apostle speaks about the reward. What is it that's purchased by the labor? I think this is absolutely critical insight here because the Apostle assumes that people are motivated by the affirmation, the approbation, the support, and the gratitude of others. That's important to acknowledge. Because in the Reformed world, we tend to feel like people should just be doing things for the sake of doing things. I know it's not written in our confessions. But there is a sort of categorical imper imperative ethic at work. 
just do your duty kind of thing. It's true you're supposed to do your duty. That shouldn't have to be said. But you see here what the Apostle is saying, it's an abnormal psychology to say that people shouldn't be interested in the approbation and thanks of others when they serve them. It's okay. It's right. The assumption here is that people operate this way and something that will motivate me to excellent work is that when you give excellent work, people acknowledge it. So Paul is commending to the deacons diligence in their work, serving with distinction by having them think about the result, which will be the high standing, the approbation they receive from the people of God. And that teaches the church something. If we want excellent service out of our officers, let's make sure we thank them for their service. If we want excellent service out of our officers, let's make sure we thank them for their service. It works both ways. It works both ways, but it's still true. Otherwise, there would be no motive setting forth here if the people of God weren't being moved as they sought to acknowledge that Christ is stirring and working in that person to minister and bring blessing to them. The other is holy confidence. The first is the brotherly approbation, but the next here is holy confidence. And uh, this is a quite interesting phrase here where it says they obtain for themselves great confidence in the faith that is in Jesus Christ. The word for confidence means boldness. And typically when it's used in New Testament Greek and even outside of that in, in secular Greek, very often this particular word for boldness refers to bold public speech. Refers to the person who can stand up in a room full of people even those who are hostile to his point of view, and bring the message with clarity and conviction and persuasive force. That doesn't make any sense here. Speech is not in view. In particular, we can see what the boldness is with respect to, and the boldness is with respect to Christ. What we begin to understand is this is a subjective sense and awareness that the, the person receives that, that they are steeped of, in, in the love of God in Christ. This is about a deep and profound sense of, of awareness of the love of God the Father in Christ to them. And there, there is implied in this that a person's sense of confidence or boldness in Christ is something that can grow. It can be stretched out and enlarged. We don't all have the same level, quality, and intensity of confidence in Christ. And what the Apostle Paul is, is, um, is setting forth here for the deacon to think about so that they will fulfill their office well is that when they do, they will receive this wonderful gift of grace that their heart will be enlarged with a sense of the fatherly kindness and love of God. What would that do to somebody? Well, it seems to me that that would invigorate their service. It seems to me it would lead somebody to work harder, smarter, and more productively 
the more their heart is in love, enlarged with the knowledge of God in Christ and of His grace, the more excellent service is stimulated. So here the apostle says the currency for receiving that is the hard work and the excellent work. If a person wants more of that sense of the love of God, then they exercise them un- themselves unto the greatest diligence and excellence and in their service. And Paul incentivizes that service by setting forth great benefits. But you know, if you stop to think about that, you realize the, Apo- the Apostle Paul is not incentivizing benefits or the seeking of benefits for the sake of seeking benefits. The ultimate implication of Paul's thought here is he is incentivizing excellent service through holding out its benefits. The implication is there would be more of the excellence, not less. And so the the end aim or goal of this is to say that Christ would have His church not just served, but Christ would have His church served with excellence. And that should be important to us this morning. As Presbyterians, I often joke, our theme verse is 1 Corinthians 14.40, let everything be done decently and in order. That things should be done in a way that's excellent, that's organized, that's under Christ. But you see, the end of it all is that it's beneficial. The people of God are built up and served and encouraged and made to sense the, the mercy of God in Christ as they are, as they are served in the Word and as they are served in the, the service of shepherding, as they are served with Christ in mercy. And then when that happens, Christ is glorified. And so what does our chapter do? Our, our chapter, as we take in the larger picture here now that's presented to us, is that Christ would have His church served in a particular way. And that way is with excellence. Excellent service. You see, sloppiness isn't okay. Disorderliness isn't okay. Unethical service isn't okay. Incompetence isn't okay. What Christ would have is order, restraint, dignity, vigor, timeliness, efficiency. Everything that goes into making sure the people of God are experiencing the wholeness of the grace of Christ. So people of God, as you can see, we're at the end of our series. And I remind you, as we stand here at the end of our series, that's never hidden my motives for preaching this. I've never hidden my motives for preaching this series. In fact, I have laid the cards out on the table from day one. The reason for preaching this series on officers and offices is because Christ would have His church served. And I have challenged you at the end of every sermon to ask yourself, is it me? Is Christ moving me? Because the question is not whether Christ would have His church served. We know that. 
It's not how he would have his church served. It's with excellence. We know that. The question now, at the end of this series of sermons on officers and officers is, is it me? Has Christ been enlarging my heart? Has the Spirit of God been working in me? Has He been moving me? Has He been promoting within me an urge and a desire and a sincere um, uh, longing to be a servant in Christ's church? And so this morning I present that same challenge to you again. If you see the hand of God producing good spiritual fruit in you, if you feel a sense of stirring in your heart and a desire to serve Christ by serving His church, then I urge you to take all of that sense of of spiritual operation within you and bring it before the Lord in prayer and ask whether God is calling you in this way and if you are feeling that and sensing that. And you are obligated under Christ to set forth those gifts and that sense of calling before the elders and to say, I believe, and I say this in all humility, I believe Christ is giving me to this church. Oh, I hope some are hearing. More than that, I hope some respond so that the Lord may be pleased to bless this congregation with an increase of excellent officers who will serve Christ with excellence.